You're listening to the Presence Pioneers Podcast. I was asked to share with you guys tonight about, about living as priest. I love this topic. It's something I'm very passionate about. And so I'm going to kind of share like some big picture macro level stuff from the Bible tonight. And here's how I want you to think about what I'm sharing. You ever seen a puzzle with tons of little pieces in it? If you pick up one little piece of that puzzle and you look at it, you don't have any idea what it is, do you? It's just like a little bit of color or a little splotch of something, maybe a, a shape or a line. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. The only way to, m- to make sense of that puzzle piece is to know what the big picture looks like, right? And so our lives are like those puzzle pieces. And many times we look at our own little lives and we go, what is going on? <laughs> what are we doing? What's our purpose? What's happening? But when we understand the big picture of what God is doing, what he's orchestrating in the earth right now, we can understand the significance of our own lives and of our own worship in the bigger picture of what God's doing. So as I lay out the big picture, and we're going to literally go from Genesis to Revelation in a few moments, and as, as you see the grand narrative and the grand scheme of what God is doing in us and in humanity and on the earth, I want you to remember that we are that little piece of a puzzle, and we understand our calling and our purpose and our destiny in God when we understand the bigger things that he's doing through Jesus Christ. So I want to literally start at the beginning. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go to Genesis and understand who we are. But I want you to know that, that God's desire from the beginning has always been that we would be with him in voluntary love, worshiping him, enjoying him, and in partnership with him forever. This has been his purpose and desire From the beginning of humanity, why did God make people? It's because he wanted to love us and be loved by us. That is why he created us, is because he wanted us to be in relationship with him. Not because he needed us, but because he wanted us. That's why he had a desire, he had a yearning, a vision in his heart, and so he made us. And so he made us primarily to do two different things. Number one is he made us to be his sons and daughters. This is our identity in God. Our primary identity is is that we are sons and daughters of God. And in a culture right now that is telling you to find your identity inside of you somewhere, (laughs) and maybe you can change that depending on how you're feeling, God wants to root us in our identity based on who he made us to be because he's our creator, he's our maker, and he determines our identity Our identity comes from something outside of us. We don't figure out our own identity. That's a lie that the enemy's trying to put pressure on you and me that we've got to figure ourselves out. And we don't have, you don't have to do that. I'm here to set you free. God wants to speak his love and identity and purpose over you. You don't determine your identity. You receive an identity. So my last name is Lily because my dad's last name is Lily. He gave me that identity. My earthly dad who actually passed away like three and a half weeks ago. And so I, this is my first mystery trip since then. And so, yeah, just honor him. He was an awesome man, loved Jesus, and, uh, and, and we miss him a lot. But part of my sense of identity came from him, right? He's my father. I was born into it. I didn't create that myself. So our primary identity is we're sons and daughters. You're born into the family of God when you become a Christian, and that's who you are. 
you know, you're just a part of the family. You don't have to do anything to earn your way into the family. You trust Jesus and you're in, and that's who you are, whether you want to be or not, which means we're all brothers and sisters with each other, whether we want to be or not too, right? So that's part of being a family. So our primary identity is that of being sons and daughters, but our primary function in the family is to be a royal priesthood. So the family business of the kingdom of God is the priesthood. So we are sons and daughters just because we are. That's our identity. But what do sons and daughters of God do? They are a royal priesthood. I believe this is at the core of what God has made us to do. And understanding that reality will help us to understand why we're here and what we should do with our lives. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When I take it back, before I go to the beginning and we go to Genesis, actually, I'm going to go to the very end, the book of Revelation. What are we going to be doing for all eternity? Revelation 5 says this, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. We're going to be a kingdom of priests to God, reigning on the earth for all eternity. And you go, okay, so what does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> but it's worth finding out, isn't it? If this is what we're going to be doing for all eternity, if we're going to be a kingdom of priests to God that reigns on the earth, we should understand what that means. Revelation 1, 5 says, says similar language that God's going to make us a kingdom of priests forever. So that's our eternal occupation. We're not going to be having to do evangelism and missions in the age to come after Jesus returns, right? What are we going to be doing? We're going to be a royal priesthood. What does that mean? Let's talk about it and let's keep digging into what that means. But our eternal occupation, our eternal purpose is connected to this idea of priesthood. Not only is our eternal purpose connected to it, but our original purpose is. So let's go to the garden now. So speaking of my dad again, he always had a little garden in our backyard. So his dad was like, had a legit garden with tractors and all that. But my dad always had like a little vegetable garden in our yard, like some tomatoes and cucumbers. Those are the kind of things grow in North Carolina. So when I read the beginning of Genesis and it says that Adam and Eve were put in the garden of Eden... I'm thinking they were put in a vegetable garden, you know, like I'm envisioning like peppers and zucchinis and cucumbers and tomatoes. And he's like trying to keep the bugs away and spread some fertilizer or something to get these things going or something. I don't know what your idea of garden is. Maybe you're thinking like flowers or something like that. But when you understand the garden of Eden, it's actually a lot different than what we might imagine at first. So Genesis 2 verse 15, important verse that if you look at it, it might just slip by. You might not even understand what it's saying. But what it's saying, and I'll explain in a minute, is that Adam's original purpose was actually to be a, a king and a priest on the earth. Genesis 2.15 says this, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Seems simple enough, right? To work it and to keep it. But who wrote the book of Genesis? Anybody know? Who do they think wrote Genesis? Anybody know? 
Moses. Yeah, I'm hearing whispers of it. You're right. As far as we know, it was, it was probably Moses. Okay. So first five books of the Bible, most people believe were written by Moses, compiled kind of all at the same time. So in Moses's day, the people related to God through a tabernacle, right? And the priests and the Levites stood outside the tabernacle. And these words in Genesis 15, where it says that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, those verbs in, in the Hebrew language, they're used in the Bible to describe the Levites who would stand outside the tabernacle and take care of the place of worship and guard the tabernacle. So when the Hebrew people would read Genesis 2.15 and they would say, God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it, they're not thinking tomatoes and cucumbers. They're thinking that the Garden of Eden is a temple and that Adam is put there as a priest to worship and to guard that temple as a place of the presence of God on the earth. That's cool. That's a, that's a lot different than I imagine when I think about what's going on in the, in the early days. But that's how Moses is describing what's, what's going on in the Garden of Eden, is that Adam and Adam and Eve are put there as royal priests. They're put there. So, so you've got two words. You've got work and to keep it. And the word work there is actually connected to the idea of cultivate. If you go look up this Hebrew word, the idea of a culture of worship. What is a culture? Well, it's, it's certain art and it's language and it's a, and it's what of certain people group the distinctives of that people group and it actually comes from the word cultivate so a culture is something that's cultivated and cultivating means you take care of something that's growing right it's something that's growing up organically but you're protecting it and taking care of it and helping that thing stewarding that thing taking care of that thing so adam is put in the garden to cultivate a culture of the kingdom of God and the presence of God and the glory of God to create a worship culture and then to guard it and to keep it. So Adam was a priest to God. And then when God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he's not just saying have babies. He's saying, take the culture of Eden, have babies that are going to be royal priests that will expand Eden to cover the earth. So the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the whole earth is full of worship and worshipers, people that love God, minister to him as priests, and then steward the earth as a dwelling place for God, for his glory on the earth. That's cool. That's why we exist, is to minister to the Lord, worship him, and steward our lives and steward whatever influence that God's given us to be a place for his presence and for his kingdom here on the earth. Isn't that awesome? So we go, oh yeah, worship, that's great. You know, like we're going to sing some songs and have a good time, but worship is a huge deal. Adam was put in the garden to worship the Lord. And really you could think of him as like a worship leader, if you want to stretch it a little bit, right? He was there to love God, to walk with God, to be in intimate relationship with God. And then he was there to keep that place as an atmosphere where God was worshiped and adored and his will was done and, and that things were in agreement and honoring and obedient to the Lord. And of course, you guys know the story, right? 
they didn't fulfill their job, right? They, they didn't guard Eden as a place of, of God's glory and presence. Satan came in and they sinned and the earth fell into sin and here we are, right? And so all of the Bible is a journey back to Eden. The whole narrative is about God's people trying to get back to where we started, that things would be restored, that our relationship with God would be restored, that the earth would be restored, the brokenness and injustice and pain of the earth would be restored back to that perfection that God originally had in the garden. And God is restoring that through Jesus. He is going to do that, and he's doing that even now. So I told you, big picture, but we're that little puzzle piece that connects into this big picture of what God's wanting us to do. And worship is right at the heart of it. Being a priest and ministering to the Lord is right at the heart of all of this. So I want to give some definition because I've been a little vague here. What does it mean to be a priest? And what does it mean to be a king? Because this is what Adam was called to do. This is what we're called to do. It's what we'll be doing forever. As priests, we minister to God. Just drop that phrase first and then I'll talk about it more. We minister to God worshiping, praying, serving him with all of our hearts and lives. We enjoy him, fellowship, and interact with him in loving, intimate relationship and offer him spiritual sacrifices of praise and partner with him in intercession. But the heart of it is ministry to the Lord, our worship. That's, that's what priests do. They First and foremost, they minister to God. And from the overflow of that, they minister to others. As kings, what does it mean to be kings? As kings, we steward the earth with God, partnering with him to keep creation in right order. It is our job to keep the sanctuary of the earth as a holy place of worship, that God would have a resting place where his will is done on the earth as in heaven. So these two things, being priest and king, I tease them out to give definition to them, but they go together. Okay, that's why you see the phrase royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests. They're They're not separate things. You actually can't do one without the other. If you begin to minister to God and begin to spend time with the Lord and begin to worship, begin to cultivate relationship and intimacy with God, he is going to, from that place, begin to launch you out into ministry to others. It's inevitable, okay? Because if you really get in the presence of God and open your heart to him, the overflow of that is always going to be ministry to others, some expression of love and care and service to other, other people because God loves people. So if you spend time with God, that's what it's going to be cultivated and stirred up in our own hearts. But also we can't go be kings and try to change the world without God himself. So you've got some people trying to do that where they're trying to do the royal part without the priesthood part. And they're out there trying to, I'm going to go take over the world and, and transform culture And it's like, and okay, so you've got a great Instagram following, you've got all this influence, but you have no spiritual authority on your life because you haven't spent any time with God. And so you have nothing to bring to your place of influence (laughs) because you haven't been a priest to God and you haven't been in his presence. And so the reason David could stand before Saul and play his harp and the demons would leave was because he had cultivated something in the secret place on the hillsides of Israel where he and God had developed intimacy and relationship and and he, he had oil on his life and authority on his worship so that when he stood in front of Saul, 
God showed up and he had more authority than the whole king of the nation because he knew God, the real king. And so those two things go together, that priestly ministry and that, that, that kingly ministry, those two things go together in the kingdom of God. They always have to. They're intertwined and connected. But one of them goes first, and the priestly ministry always comes first. Ministry to others is always the overflow of ministry to God and not the other way around. Hey guys, this is Matthew. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider joining Presence Pioneers Premium, our brand new subscriber community. Paid subscribers will get exclusive premium content such as bonus podcast episodes, exclusive articles, early releases, and more. Presence Pioneers will be releasing its first e-course in 2024 with many more to come. And the Presence Pioneers premium subscribers will always have full access to the entire library of online courses. Visit media.presencepioneers.org or click the link in the description to join today. You can become a premium member today for an introductory price of only $5 a month. When the price goes up in the future, as our library of resources grows, you can stay subscribed at the original price. If you've enjoyed our podcast for a while, becoming a premium member is a simple way for you to help us cover the cost of producing this podcast and partner with Presence Pioneers in equipping the church with resources for day and night prayer, prophetic worship, missions, and revival. Visit media.presencepioneers.org to sign up today. So we have to be a priesthood if we want to be all that God's called us to be. So how do we minister to God? Because it seems like that's an important thing. (laughs) What does it mean? How do we become priests? How do we minister to the Lord? So it's important to offer a caveat here. When we think of ministry, we typically think of maybe what I'm doing right now, preaching, or maybe we think of praying for someone, helping someone, serving someone, you know, encouraging someone. God doesn't need any of that, does he? <laughs> no one needs to preach to God. No one needs to feed God a meal. No, God doesn't need encouragement, right? No one needs to pray for God, <laughs> right? He's doing just fine. So how do we minister to him if all of our definitions of ministry don't relate to a perfect totally satisfied in himself God that doesn't need anything. And so he doesn't need healing. He doesn't need anything practical. He doesn't need to get saved, right? <laughs> For, again, let's, we, let's look at First Peter. First Peter 2, 5 says, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, here it goes, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's what the holy priesthood, the royal priesthood does, is they offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, so what are, what are those spiritual sacrifices? I'll give you a couple, and this is not an exhaustive list, but here are a few of them. Romans 12.1, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We offer all of our lives as a worship to the Lord. 
Worship is not just the songs. It's not just the music. It's not just church. I believe at the heart of biblical worship, understand it means that we offer all that we are. Whatever we do, we do it as under the Lord. So number one, we offer our lives as a spiritual sacrifice. Number two, we offer broken and contrite hearts. Psalms 51, 17. David understood this reality. He understood, God, you don't delight in burnt offerings and animal sacrifices, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You will not despise. Psalm 51, 17. Number three, we offer the sacrifice of praise. So we do sing, right? What we just did for an hour. That was ministry to the Lord. At least some of it was for some of us. <laughs> so maybe some of us were just enjoying the music or whatever, but at least parts of it, I think we were, I mean, we were really just offering God our love and our praise, right? So Hebrews 13, 15 says to offer God a sacrifice of praise. Uh, number four, we offer God our prayers as a spiritual sacrifice as priests. Our prayers are like incense, the Bible says. Revelation 5, 8 describes the throne of God. And it says that these elders around God's throne are holding bowls of incense that it says are the prayers of the saints. And they, ride, they smell good to God. Like what we say to him smells good to him, which is like, that's so strange. And his desire is that our surrounding him in heaven are our our conversations that we've had with, with him. It's amazing. That's a ministry to him, right? It doesn't, it doesn't help him. He doesn't, praise doesn't add anything to God, right? But it, it is a ministry to him. It is an offering of worship. So you can say, how do you minister to God? Big picture, worship. You can just say worship is how we minister to God. But there's specific, these specific spiritual sacrifices that the New Testament, and there's others that you, that you can find, Actually, preaching the gospel is actually an, a, can be a ministry to the Lord. Uh, Paul describes preaching the gospel as a priestly ministry. So I want to encourage you guys in your lives, in your worship times at church. And, you know, I think most of you, a lot of you are involved in worship ministries or want to be. As you play your instrument, sing your songs, pray your prayers, live your life, do it to God. Literally imagine him. You're allowed to use your imagination as Christians. That's okay. God gave it to us. I literally sit down on my couch in my office sometimes and just imagine that Jesus is sitting there beside me and talk to him. And it helps me because he is present with me, but it just helps me to connect to that reality. And I encourage you sing to him. Misty Edwards has this old song. I don't want to talk about you like you're not in the room, you know, and it's just like, just love it. Like God's not just out there somewhere. Maybe he hears our worship. Maybe he doesn't, but he's listening. He's like tuning in and he's receiving it. And I don't totally understand how all this works, but somehow it's blessing him. Somehow it's like what they described those old burnt offerings. It's like a pleasing aroma to God. God must like smells, I guess, but a pleasing aroma, incense to him, right? He loves that. He receives it. And he's moved by it. I want to move your heart. It's all I want to do. How does God's heart get moved by us? That's crazy. But it does. He's moved by our worship. He's not changed by it, but somehow God has emotions and, and those emotions respond to our worship in a beautiful way. Song of Solomon 4.9, is this, this picture of the bride and the bridegroom. Jesus is like this bridegroom and 
Uh, he, he says to the bride, you have captivated my heart. My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. You know, when we just look at Jesus, it says we've captivated his heart. That's amazing, isn't it? That we can captivate the heart of God. We can move the heart of God with our worship. That's our ministry to him. Why would we not want to do that? That's what it means to minister to the Lord. And like I said earlier, not only is it what we were made to do, not only is it what we're going to be doing forever, but it is the genesis of our mission that God has given us to accomplish in the earth right now. So I want to take a few, the last few minutes here, and I want to talk about prioritizing ministry to God and making this a priority in your life. Because in my experience, most things will pull us away from this, not to this. We're all busy, right? You ask anybody, how are you doing? Busy. I'm good, but just busy. You know, that's how everybody's doing, right? Life is so busy. We've got so much going on. We've got screens everywhere vying for our attention and 30 second videos that are, that are flashing. So our attention span's gone. And so it's like, how do we take the time to be before God and minister to him? in our lives. We have to love him first. That has to be the wellspring of everything else in our lives. Jesus was asked, uh, I think they were trying to give him a trick question. What is the greatest commandment in the law? You know, and I always think if I was asked that question, if I didn't know, if I didn't already know Jesus's answer, I think my, my answer would be, oh, there's no greatest commandment. It's all the word of God and it's all valuable. You know, some real nice spiritual sounding answer. But Jesus actually answered the question. He said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew 22, 37 through 38. And he says, this is the greatest and the first commandment. The first commandment. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it it is second, right? And it's important. But the first commandment is love God. And the second commandment is love others. And I I don't believe we can love others to the extent that God desires for us if we have not first cultivated a relationship with the Lord in secret place. Learn to minister before him. I know many of you already minister to God. Maybe you don't use that language. So I'm not trying to say there's some mysterious ministry to God that you have to do. I'm just trying to help you understand what happens when you worship what happens when you cultivate that, that intimacy with the Lord in private? But it's got to be first. King David said in Psalm 27, 4, there's one thing I desire of the Lord, and that will I seek. And then he describes three things. <laughs> that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. So I love that he's like, there's only one thing I want, God. And here's those, here's those three things. But they're all really one thing, their relationship with him. They're knowing him and loving him, being in his presence, seeing him, beholding him, and hearing his voice. That's relationship with God. David called it his one thing. So David did more than one thing. David was the king of a nation. He was a governmental leader. He was the leader of the military. He was a warrior. He did a lot of things. He did not just do one thing. He was not sitting in his prayer closet all day. He had a lot of stuff going on in his life. He was busy, right? (laughs) 
if anybody was busy, but he said, there's one thing that's needed. What's the point? The point is, it's not that I only do one thing, it's that I do the one thing first. And if I get this thing right, then everything else in my life comes into alignment. If my relationship with God is in order, then it affects everything. That's what it means to make your relationship with God the one thing. This phrase, one thing, comes up again in Luke chapter 10, the story of Mary and Martha, when uh, Jesus is at their house and Martha's busy getting all the food ready. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his voice, ministering to him, if you will, praying to him, if you will. And Martha gets offended because she's trying to get all the work done. And Mary's just sitting there listening. She's probably also, side note, probably also offended because women weren't supposed to sit and listen to rabbis. And Jesus was letting her listen. Jesus just was so honoring to women in that culture of the day. So Mary's sitting there. She's a woman, so she's not supposed to be listening to a rabbi. She's not helping Martha out, but Jesus defends her. Luke 10, 41, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing, there's that phrase, one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. It's not that work doesn't have to get done, but it's that we have to get our priorities straight. We have to get things in our lives in order uh, and prioritize his presence, prioritize priestly ministry to him above everything else. A couple more examples here. Acts chapter 13. Well, before we even get to Acts chapter 13, let's just think about the book of Acts. Think about the church. How did Jesus launch Christianity? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all the nations. And then he said, wait in the upper room until I send power from on high. So what were the disciples supposed to do? Were they supposed to go or were they supposed to wait? The answer is yes. <laughs> but they had to do the first thing first. They had to wait for power from on high in the upper room, 10 days. They didn't know it was going to be 10 days. They waited until they just, they waited on the Lord. They were probably fasting. They were definitely praying and singing. And then the Holy Spirit came on Shavuot, Pentecost, as we call it, and 3,000 people get saved in a moment after a 10-day prayer meeting. And this is how the church starts. This is how Christianity is launched with 10 days of priestly meeting, one sermon, 3,000 people get saved, revival breaks out in Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, what's going on? And then all the disciples and apostles are trying to figure out how to steward this crazy revival that's happening and Christianity is born. But I believe that that upper room uh, layout is not just, it's, it's a pattern. I don't think it's just how the church started. I think it's how the church continues. And you see that throughout the book of Acts where they kept going back to the place of prayer, going back to the place of worship, gathering together, and then God would send them out and then they would minister to people and then they would, they would go back and they had rhythms in their life where they were ministering to God and ministering to others. They were priests and they were kings. They were a royal priesthood. They had both of those going on. And I feel like that kind of comes to a climax in, in sort of a mature form in Acts 13 at the church at Antioch. And this was the first multi-ethnic church in the New Testament. Okay, so all the believers were Jewish believers for most of the first 10 or so chapters of Acts. 
And the first sort of church that, that comes together that's got individuals and even leaders representing multiple ethnicities is, is in the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13. What were they doing here at Antioch? Acts 13, 2. They ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Spirit said, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So the church at Antioch was ministering to the Lord. Acts 13, 2. They were worshiping. The word in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, that the word ministering to the Lord, it's just one word. It's liturgeo. And it's where we get the word liturgy from, liturgeo. So there was this daily liturgy of worship and prayer and ministry to the Lord. This wasn't a one-time event. In the Greek Old Testament, which is what the apostles would have used at the time, the word liturgeo was used again to describe the Levites in the tabernacle that they would worship in the tabernacle every day. And so the, the point is what was happening at Antioch was a priestly ministry. And it's from this place that Saul, who became Paul, was launched out. These are the very first Christian missionaries, cross-cultural missionary. They were launched right here in Acts 13, verse 2 and 3. And they were set out from a place of the presence of God in an atmosphere of regular rhythms of ministering to God, worship, prayer, fasting, and it created an environment of the presence of God where they could hear God and get launched into their assignment for mission. But their first priority was priestly. It was ministering to God and then allow the Spirit of God to lead and to, to send and to speak from that, from that place of ministering to God. Aaron mentioned earlier the John Piper quote that, Missions exist because worship doesn't. He also said, this is all from the first chapter of his book on missions, but he says that worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the fuel and the goal of missions. So what does he mean? He means first it's the fuel. It's what we've just been talking about. It's that as we see Jesus and worship him and minister to him, our hearts are falling more in love with him and how can we not want to share that with other people? We naturally share and talk about and celebrate that which is most important to us, that which we delight in and take joy in, right? Whether, whether we want to or not, we end up talking about things that, we, that have given us pleasure and delight and TV shows we've watched and the restaurant that's really good to us and whatever. If we've been delighting in Jesus, then that will overflow into our lives. Worship fuels missions, but it's also the goal of missions. So we bring people into the kingdom of God, share the gospel with them. They get saved and they become worshipers, right? And then they join the priesthood. They join the ministry to the Lord and then they start worshiping and then they get launched out and then they bring more people in and then they join in the worship. Worship is the fuel and it's the goal of missions. This is how we function in, in this royal priesthood that we're called to be. God is restoring that original purpose that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. That was, this is Adam's original calling, was to minister to God, to be a priest before God, to worship him, and then be a conduit and a steward of God's kingdom on the earth. And Jesus is beginning to recommission us 
starting with the church, to be what we were called to be, what we were originally made to be. And when one day Jesus will return again and he will bring full restoration, he'll make all things new, it says. And it's going to be Garden of Eden times a million (laughs) all over the earth, every tongue, tribe, and nation, all the cultures redeemed an expression of love and worship to Jesus from, from every culture of the earth offered to him all over the world. It's going to be beautiful. We're not going to go to heaven per se, uh, but heaven is going to come here to the earth. The ultimate is a new heavens and a new earth, but it's going to be redeemed. God's not going to destroy the earth and have us float around on some, some spiritual clouds somewhere. We get new bodies just like Jesus did, and we're going to be doing things on a new earth for all eternity. So we have this weird idea of what it's going to be like. We're going to be kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth, right? Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. What good is that if the earth's going to be destroyed? So it will go through fire, so to speak. And I don't know how that's going to, how is it going to get from where it is now to new heavens and new earth? I, I don't understand how all that's going to pan out and play out, but I know there's going to be a death and a resurrection. There's going to be a redemption, a renewal that's going to take place and we get new bodies and we get to be a royal priesthood forever. So this is a quote from, uh, I'll, I'll close with this. Sean Foyt and Andy Bird wrote a book called Fire and Fragrance. It's a great, great YWAM book, but it says this, when the church comes back to ministry to the heart of God, revival comes back to the church. And when revival comes to the church, the church transforms the world. I'll say that one more time. When the church comes back to ministry to the heart of God, revival comes to the church. And when revival is in the church, the church transforms the world. Beautiful summary of all I've been speaking about here. But it starts, right? It starts with ministering to the heart of God. That's what awakens us. That's the birthplace of all that God wants to do in seeing the world transformed. But I don't know if you're spending time with Jesus every day. I don't know if you have a, have a prayer life. I, I, don't, I don't know where you're at. You, know, you, you might be fully on board and you need to be up here teaching this right now. I don't know. But I think it's worth a constant just evaluation. Lord, where, where are we at? <laughs> and... It's in my experience now, even as a leader of prayer ministries, I can develop a disconnect in my heart, in my personal relationship with God. Even as a worship leader or a leader of ministries that are supposed to be all about connecting to God, my personal intimacy with the Lord can wane. And, you know, the only time I go to God is because I need a sermon or I need to pray about what songs I'm going to put on my song list or, you know, something like that. Instead of just learning to just be with God for God and just loving him and just enjoying him just for him. And so maybe we could just ask the Lord, God, what, what does it look like for me to minister to you first? What does that look like? How do I prioritize your presence in my life? How can I be the priest that you've called me to be? And it starts with our hearts, right? So like stewardship that priestly, royal priestly calling starts with stewarding our hearts and then it begins to expand out from there. 